Today's reading comes from Genesis chapter 42, and we're going to start in verse 21 to 28. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for their journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys um, with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack and gave his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, My money has been been put back here. It, here it is in the mouth of, the, of my sack. At this their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? This is the word of God. You may be seated. Hopefully you have your Bibles out, whether paper Bible or your phone, and you should turn to chapter 42, starting with verse 1. I figured since we read 1 through 28 last week. We didn't need to read the whole thing again this week, even though I will be preaching over. Actually, we only got last week, um, like I said, I only got about a third of the way through my message. Um, I got point one, and I, I, I felt in the spirit I needed to be done, which is good for you, or else we would have been here like two o'clock in the afternoon. But today I'm preaching 7 through 28, which is a pretty, pretty big portion of scripture. In fact, we're preaching through, I've been preaching through and teaching through this book of Genesis since chapter 12, and now we're at chapter 28, uh, chapter 28, sorry, no, we're at chapter 40, 42, I have to look here too, where are we at today? No, um, and we're at the life of Joseph. I'm not going to give a full recap um, from Abraham to Joseph, but Joseph is known very well because he's an interpreter of dreams. In fact, there is a, uh, a cartoon, a feature-length animated feature that came out called Joseph, King of Dreams. And we had shown that to our kids during one of the children's church. And every time I see that name, I think Joseph is turning in his grave because Joseph never took that on himself. When someone said, don't you interpret dreams? He said, isn't God the one who interprets dreams? So Joseph is really well known for his interpretation of dreams. And uh, uh, interpretation of dreams, and I love that because I don't know if you noticed this. A lot of my um, a lot of my titles for my sermons happen to correlate to '80s ballads, and uh, I was like, for this one, I thought about naming it "You Make My Dreams Come True" by Holland Oates. Um, I was tempted to, but I didn't. I named it instead. What is this that God has done? That's their question, and a very poignant question. It's a question that many people have asked. What is this that God is doing? These 10 brothers of Joseph, and let me give you just a very quick recap. There's 12 brothers of a guy named Jacob. Jacob has four wives, which is messed up, and it was messed up then, it's messed up now. Um, four wives. His favorite wife, and that's weird to have a favorite wife, is a woman named Rachel. She has two sons. One is Joseph, one is Benjamin. He has then 10 other sons from different women. 
And these sons, these 12 sons, they're known as the patriarchs because each one will found a tribe of the nation of Israel, Jacob, whose name is changed to Israel. And as we talk about, as I preach through, as I preach through Genesis, we are talking about a story of a family. We call it today a dysfunctional family. This historical event is filled with drama and peril. There's a famine that is throughout the known world. It is seven years long. It deals with nations and kings. But when we get right down to it, it's about a family, a broken family. Other weeks, I do a full recap on the events from Genesis 12 onward. But today, I'm just looking at, since it's part two, these 12 brothers. They are brothers from the same father, but not all from the same mother. They're what we may call today a dysfunctional family. It's more than that, too. They took their second to youngest brother, and they sold him into slavery. Now God has brought them together and uses this famine to do it. Last week, we left off in verse, in verse uh, 7, in verse 6, sorry, in which we see the fulfillment of Joseph's dreams. When Joseph was 17, he's a young man, God gives him two dreams. These are dreams that God literally gives him, even though the interpretation is with others, and they are dreams given to him, but the message is actually for his brothers. And in these dreams, him and his brothers are gathering these sheaves of wheat, so these things of wheat, and their sheaves bow down to his sheaf of wheat. Second dream, they are the stars, and the stars bow down to him. And his brothers think they know what this means. And this is the problem, is that we, pastor I know one time said that we are, we are hesitant to pray, thy will be done, because we are secretly suspicious of the Father's intentions towards us. We don't pray first, we plan first, and then we ask God, bless my plan. Because if I pray first, God's going to be this ultimate killjoy, and the thing I want to do, I won't get to do, it'll be something so much worse. They could never imagine that when this dream comes true, when they are bowing with their face to Joseph, it'll be not anxiety, not their fears coming to light, it will be relief, at least for a moment anyway. Because what happens next, Joseph accused them of being spies, and we'll get to that in a second. But I was going to name this, uh, this, this uh, sermon, You Make My Dreams Come True, because this was a dream they didn't want to come true, but it was a dream they needed to come true, and they didn't even know it. If God was to show you, give you a snapshot of his plans for you, you'd run the other way screaming because you couldn't understand that you will be a different person as God molds you and shapes you for that time to come. This is the first time they bow down with their faces to Joseph. The second time will be even more meaningful than this time because they don't even know who Joseph is. This time they bow down not knowing who Joseph is. The second time it will be knowing who Joseph is. God uses this famine to bring this family together. In the, in the intervening time, between the time they sold their brother into slavery till now, it's been 20 years. 20 years of guilt. Hopefully this is a godly sorrow, not a worldly sorrow, but it does seem it might be a worldly sorrow. What is the difference? Actually, could you pull up uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 and 11? Talking about worldly sorrow versus godly sorrow. We do something wrong, we should feel bad about it, but there is a difference between the two. For godly grief pr produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. 
For see what earnest this godly grief has produced in you, but also what earnestness, earnestness to clear yourselves, what indignation with fear, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proven yourselves innocent in the matter. Worldly guilt just makes us feel bad. In fact, we kind of do see this with these brothers is that they know that they've done wrong and they believe every bad thing that happens to them is because of what they did to their brother. Godly, godly guilt, godly grief, godly sorrow leads to repentance and does not leave regret. We see in them a desire to repent. We see in them faith. God will make this come about. They ask the question in verse 28, what is this that God has done? They are referring to the money showing, showing back up in their packs, but they might as well be asking it about their entire lives, this same question. It's the same answer. This is what God is doing. He wants to forgive, to reconcile, and to clear and to cleanse their consciences. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the discipline of the Lord. The discipline of the Lord is for our highest good. It doesn't feel good when we are experiencing it, but it's for our highest good. The discipline of the Lord may feel like punishment, but it is ultimately for our highest good. God disciplines us even as he saves us. This discipleship gives us fruit of the Spirit and freedom from a guilty conscience. God works all things together in Romans 8, 28. And we know that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to, this perp to his purpose. This doesn't mean that everything that happens to us is good or even should be good, but it all works together for the good of those who love him. The Greek word that they translate, the two words is one word. Works together is one word in the Greek. It's sergeo which is where we get our English word synergy, synergy. I talked about this last week. I made a mistake, and everybody was so good not to point it out. So synergy, you take two things, you put them together, they work together, and they're greater than the sum of their parts. So for instance, if you take sodium, which is volatile, it's one of the softest metals in the periodic table, if you put it in water, it explodes, if you take chloride, I think I said chlorine last, last week, and nobody, if you, if you watch the video, you probably see my eyes go like, I'm saying something wrong. Chloride, which is toxic, you put it together, and if you put those two elements together, it makes some people's food almost edible. It's table salt. Because it works together for our good. On, its, on separately, though, very dangerous. But you put it together, it works for the good. So that is how God works in our life, dear believer. Not everything that happens to us is good, but it works to the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And one of those ways that God does this is in our discipline, in our discipleship. We talk about being a disciple of Christ. Where does that word come from? Discipline. If you are a disciple, you are one who is undergoing a discipline. We tend to see it as the way we discipline kids. They've done something wrong, we have to correct them, and we get confused with punishment. But the discipline of the Lord is different. It's for our highest good. It's making us into the image of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ himself endured the discipline of his father. In Hebrews 5.8, it talks about he learned obedience from what he had suffered. He had never done anything wrong. It's about a training in righteousness. 
This is what God does in the believer in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. And if you could pull that up, that'd be fantastic. Romans chapter 5, verse 3 through 5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. I don't know every reason why you may or may not, may not go through suffering. I know one of the reasons, though, is that God will work it towards your good to produce in you first endurance, then character, then hope. And hope does not disappoint because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. I'd remind you of Hebrews that says that though when you are going through discipline, it is not pleasant. Joseph has been going through the discipline of the Lord, though really there is no sin that we can really point to objectively in his life. He's been going through the discipline of the Lord through this in 20 years. He has learned discipline in Potiphar's house. He's learned discipline in the prison. He's now learned discipline as the governor over Egypt. When we think of the discipline of the Lord, we tend to think of it as punishing a child, but that's not the aim. It's not punishing. It's not behavior modification. It is for us to be more in the image of Jesus Christ. It's, God, is like, God is like an expert sculptor. You know, Michelangelo, he was this great sculptor. Somebody asked him, okay, how can you take a block of marble and make such a beautiful horse out of this block of marble? He's like, it's easy. All I do is I take that block of marble and I take away everything that doesn't look like that horse. Which is amazing considering, you know, he's a ninja turtle and everything. But, uh... I love that joke, and I'm always going to use it. Um, but that's what the Father does in us. He takes his chisel. He takes away everything that doesn't look like Christ. When it comes to a block of marble, it has no feelings. It has no pain. When it comes to us, and he chisels away something, maybe something that we've lied to ourselves to think that it's part of our personality, part of our identity. And God comes along and says, it's not your identity. Any identity you find that's not in him is a false identity. Any identity that is not in subjugation to that of Jesus Christ himself, although we have different personalities within that, is a false identity and he will chisel it away and it will be painful as we saw that in Joseph as we see it in his ten brothers here as God uses his discipline for them. He will use discipline on these twelve brothers as we see the discipline of the Lord on these 12 brothers, we see three types of discipline. We've already went through one of these. One of, that, one of them is using the sin, this sinful world, this fallen world. That's a famine. I know this messes with uh, some people's uh, theology, but that's too bad. The scripture is clear on this. God sent the famine. Some people are like, God doesn't send famine. Yes. Psalm 105, he sent the famine. Second Chronicles chapter 7, if I send, and we have a number of things the Lord sends, and we have 714, but if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, his people who are called by his name. There's no ambiguity there. It's not for the non-believer, it's for the believer that God will use this fallen world, and he uses this famine, he uses the rumbling in their belly to draw these 12 brothers together because God is not satisfied with them being a dysfunctional family. 
At the end of the book of the beginning, this family will be, will, they will be healed and brought back together. God uses this fallen world to disciple his children, and he uses a famine to draw these ten to Egypt, where Joseph is waiting. They don't know the words of Christ when the devil tells him to change these stones into bread, but they will learn this through the discipline they are about to go through, that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth from the mouth of God. Number two, the sins of others. That's verses 7 through 17. The third is our own sin, 18 through 28. Truly, he works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. As I get into this and as I get into the first one was about how he uses a famine. These 10 brothers are drawn to Egypt through this famine. This will be part of their discipline. They have this guilty conscience. Even the word Egypt makes them start looking around. It's a trauma word. God is going to heal what has been ripped apart. As we go into the sins of others, I want to take a moment here real quick and further explain the discipline I'm talking about. Least do you think that what Joseph suffered at the hands of his brothers he had coming, coming to him. I'm using in the same way the author of Hebrews chapter 12 does. That it's about training, not necessarily always correction. After all, Jesus, who was sinless, who, was never needed to be, who never needed to be corrected, endured the discipline of the Lord. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 2 through 8. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 2 through 8. By the way, huge appreciation to the people back there. I know I go fast. I know that it's kind of hard to follow me sometimes. And I appreciate you making sure that. And as a quick aside before I go any further, um, if you don't know this, we video in 4K. And you can't really see that on the live event, but you can check it out on YouTube and it looks fantastic. You can see the pattern on my shirt, probably all my pores and everything, which is gross. But I just think it's awesome. I check that out every now and again. So the discipline of the Lord, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 2 through 8. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse 3, pay attention. Consider him who endured, su- endured from sinners such hostility against himself. You know, that's part of the plan of God. He endured hostility from sinners. They didn't know, and they were, they, were, they were responsible for their sin. That's why Jesus said, Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. It's part of the plan of God. And consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. I know some people, and they're so bitter because they endured hostility from somebody. These are brothers. You know, the hardest, the, the deepest wounds are those in families. Family, somebody you trusted. In verse 4, in your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? How about this? Sometimes we endure hostility from sinful people and we say to God, you've abandoned me. We say to God, why aren't you watching? And it's actually, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be wary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have endured. 
God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. If you were to live this life and never go through any trouble, warning signs. You're not a legitimate son of the Father. And we, as we struggle against our own sin, our own rebel nature, we suffer that way. We suffer from others as well because that's the example the Lord gives in Hebrews chapter 12 that Jesus Christ endured such hostility against himself by sinners. Joseph is the example in this because he endured evil from his brothers. In fact, Joseph says at the very end in chapter 50 that what you meant for evil, God meant it for the good. They meant it for evil. Here's the amazing thing about forgiveness. Here's how incredible and supernatural true forgiveness is, is it doesn't make excuses. And a lot of times that's how we, 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 we get confused when it comes to forgiveness because we make excuses for the other person. Oh, they were just having a bad day. That's a man-centered forgiveness. People can do that, right? We lie to ourselves. You know, we, we gaslight ourselves by saying, oh, you know, it, it was just this way, this way. True forgiveness is says, they meant to do it, but God meant it for the good. And God has refined me as gold. It's what Job says. That I look, to the, I look to the north, he's not there. I look to the south, he's not there. I look to the east and the west, he's not there. But he knows where I come, he knows where I go. And when he is done, I will be refined as gold in the fire. Joseph's discipline started 20 years before we're at or actually more than that, 27 years, no, 20 years, sorry, I was right, 20 years before the verses that we just read. I want to be clear about this discipline that I'm talking about. It is that of training in righteousness. I run often as a discipline. I'm disciplining my body. I'm not punishing my body. I'm disciplining my body. He didn't deserve to be sold as a slave, and his brothers did mean it for evil. God, however, meant it for the good of what is being accomplished. God will use the sins of others to shape his children. In Hebrews, we hear how Christ endured such hostility from sinful men so that we do not lose heart as well. As we get into verse 7 here, Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to, to them. Where do you come from, he said, they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Jo um, he's not recognized by his brothers. He knows who they are, but they don't know him. This last summer, I saw an old mentor of mine, um, and uh, he barely recognized me. I know this might be difficult because of my current follicle issues. <laughs> but when I was a teenager, I had long flowing hair. I mean, like, it went down my back. In fact, I got pictures, in case you don't believe me. <laughs> Some of you guys are, like, gagging and everything right now. It was, it was awesome. Luscious, luscious locks. So he saw me. He's, like, grabbing the back of my head and everything. And I'm like, I can't believe there's... None of you guys have known me, that, even my wife, and never saw me with long hair. It's weird, but he barely recognized me. You know, Jesus Christ, after he was resurrected, he revealed himself to... Before he revealed himself to all of his disciples, he finds two of his disciples on the road, on a road to a place called Emmaus. They used to walk with Jesus. They used to listen at his feet. 
but they didn't recognize him either. They weren't expecting him to be alive. They don't expect, these ten brothers, they don't expect Joseph to be alive. In fact, they tell him, and we'll get to that, where they say, we have, we have we're so many brothers, one's back at home and one is no more. He's dead. We don't really know why these men who were walking with Jesus didn't recognize Jesus. Even they don't know. They said, were not our hearts burning within us when he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Maybe it was supernatural, but oftentimes if we are not expecting to see somebody somewhere, we don't recognize them. Henry Cavill, the best Superman, um, when, he was, when the movie Man of Steel was coming out, he wanted, to do, he wanted to check something out. And there was a billboard in Times Square, New York. So, you know, hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people walking by. He stood underneath the billboard wearing a Superman shirt just to see if anybody would recognize him. And one person came up and talked to him and they asked him for directions. It kind of makes you think that maybe Superman's like world aren't so stupid, you know, because he has a glasses and, you know, that's his big disguise. We're not expecting to see somebody. We don't really recognize them. And Joseph recognizes his brothers before they recognize him. Becca and I, a few years ago, we were in Ames, Iowa at the, um, oh, Jackson, you're here. Great. You're, we were at your science fair and uh, it was the uh, state science fair. Jackson did something super clever, and we were there. And um, we were sitting down with, uh, with Wendy, and um, uh, somebody comes up. Uh, I, I should tell this story well so that the, the punchline hits. Um, so we're sitting down, and we're, we're pretty new to the area. I think this is 2020. I could be wrong. Maybe it's 2021, 2020, I thought. And uh, we, were just, we were just expecting somebody comes up, and I think, oh, this must be a friend of Wendy because, of course, I'm not expecting to see anybody here. And as she was coming up, I was like, man, I was thinking in my mind, I've got to tell Becca, she looks exactly like Lily, the gal that Patrick's dating. Like, exactly like her. And so she comes up and she says, hi. And then, like, the worst thing ever happened, she's like, I'm Lily, Patrick's girlfriend. I felt so embarrassed because I was like, yes, I did recognize you. I just wasn't expecting you here. So my mind told me, this isn't the Lily you're looking for. Um, (laughs) But she recognized us before we recognized her. And what we see here is Joseph recognizes, he recognizes his brothers without them recognizing him. Last they saw him, he was 17. He was being led away. His coat of many colors had been ripped to shreds. Now he is dressed in fine Egyptian clothing. He looks like an Egyptian. He probably is wearing makeup even though he's a dude because that's what the Egyptians did. He probably has that fake goatee on. I mean, like, probably not as good as mine because I had to grow mine. They had fake goatees. He talks like an Egyptian. In fact, he uses an interpreter. He probably walks like an Egyptian. And here's another way Joseph parallels Jesus Christ. Because Jesus sees you before you see him. He, saw, he sees us. He truly sees us. He doesn't just see the, the outward appearance. He doesn't see the face we show to the rest of the world. You know the face, right? Somebody asks us how good things are, no matter how bad things are. We're like, things are great. Couldn't be better. He sees us. He doesn't see the veneer. We show the rest of the world of this moral man or woman who's going about things, but he knows our deepest, darkest sins. Last week I talked about at, this, uh, at, at Woodfield Center, at this uh, place, this uh, treatment facility, um, our, my boss had us write down the secret we didn't want anybody to know. 
and then we were going to pass it to the right, but we didn't. And I, I, I think about that, and I was thinking about this week about the Salem witch trials. One of the girls who was one of the main accusers of different people who led to people's deaths, her name was Putman, and I forget, Ann Putman Jr., in order for her to join her church in Salem, she had to have a written confession of her sins. Aren't you glad we don't do that today? You become a member. I don't have you write down all your deepest, darkest sins and share it to the congregation. I, I don't know how to feel about that because I, I feel like that's really traumatizing. And at the same time, it's good for a congregation to be demasked. That every person who's a member, you know their business. So that when people come in, they don't feel like the scarlet letters on them. But that the congregation knows. So she, in her, in her confession, she confesses to lying. She confesses to what she had done. Jesus sees us, but he loves us anyway. He truly sees us. He loves us before we loved him. We talk about finding God all the time like he's the one who is lost. But he is the one who found us. He found me. In the desert of my sin, in the famine of my soul. And he recognized me long before I recognized him. That's why I, when I talk about when I got saved, I don't say when I got saved. I don't talk about when I accepted the Lord into my life. I talk about the day he saved me. Because he deserves all the glory, all the honor, all the praise. All the recognition for my life. If I didn't know the Lord, you wouldn't recognize me. You have no clue. Every, every day I wake up, I think about this is not the life I was destined to live. And not in a bad way, in a very, very good way. I come from a long line of alcoholics. A long line of alcoholics. And my poor dad died alone. But God, but God, he saved me. He saved me. Joseph sees his brothers. They don't see him. But more than that, if we, if we zoom out 30,000 feet, God is seeing every person involved in this and he uses even the sins of others for the good of his children. In verses 10 through 13, we see a very interesting reaction from Joseph. I talked about last week, why is Joseph even here? Egypt's a big country. There's multiple places of entry from different nations. But he's at the place where the people from Canaan would be in. I'm wondering, maybe perhaps it's because he knows somebody he might recognize, let alone his very brothers might be in here. And in verse 10, they said to him, No, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest um, we are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. I'm sure Joseph was smiling at that. Verse 12, he said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. Behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. They believe Joseph is dead. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said, you are spies. But this you shall be tested by the life of Pharaoh. You shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. In chapter 41, this is one of the wonderful things about going chapter by chapter, verse by verse. So chapter 41, chapter 41 was the seven years of plenty. And the seven years of plenty are plenty in many ways. And one of those ways is that Joseph has two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Or Manasseh and Ephraim. Sorry, I got the, the order mixed up. Manasseh and Ephraim. 
And he explains why he names them Manasseh and Ephraim. Manasseh sounds like the Hebrew word for he makes me forget. And Ephraim is, is the, is, sounds like the Hebrew word, he makes me fruitful. And he says, he has made me forget my afflictions, and he's made me fruitful in the land of my afflictions. Joseph's like so many of us. We think we're over something. We say, it's in the past. I don't want to talk about it. I've moved on from here. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden something clicks for us. And it's like it just happened yesterday. I know for me, when I think about my life, there, were, there was a man my mom dated who was very abusive to me and my siblings, physically abusive. And I remember going to camp, and I remember they were at us come to the altar, tears were coming down, and I believed I forgave this man for what he had done. And then he came up in a conversation, and then that night I had such a powerful, angry dream that I woke up choking on my own stomach bile. I was so, so angry, so hated him. And I thought I was over it. Now, I, I do believe that Joseph, in very many ways, is absolutely true, but some wounds are so deep. And you, here's what God, this is why God, one of the aspects of God loving us so much is that he won't let us live in a comfortable lie. Because he wants our highest good, not the good for the second, but the ultimate good in our life. Martha Fersenel told me about this, and I thought it was an awesome illustration. Because even though I've lived in rural places all my life, in fact, my hometown makes Algona look, look pretty big. Um, so I've picked rocks and fields. And everybody here probably knows what that's like. And if you're young and you haven't, there are some farmers in here that would like to talk with you after service. Picking rocks is terrible. And I always remember, because I, but if you, if you can't get a job anywhere else, I mean, minimum wage is minimum wage. And um, so I always wondered, how do rocks come into the field like every year? I thought maybe they somehow migrated over. Maybe animals brought them over. Maybe the wind, you know, winter's bad. And Martha Fersenel told me about this, that during winter, the ground gets so hard, it works. See, even though you clear your whole land of every rock you possibly can, there are rocks deep under the surface. And during the harshness of winter, these rocks get worked out to the surface. So God will take us, maybe he'll use a famine, maybe he'll use something else, and he'll bring to the surface our unforgiveness, our hurt that he wants to heal. So Joseph, he named his sons that, those names, and I believe he believed that, but God knows something deeper, and he wants to heal a family, not just have a relative peace with him in Egypt, them over in Canaan. I don't know, I don't know that this will, um, I was going to say here, I don't know whether or not Joseph is acting emotionally or if he's being led by the Spirit. I think there's evidence of both. I think he might be led by the Spirit because he's the first person ever mentioned to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, I see a lot of pain in this as well. And we see the emotional reaction that Joseph has while he's listening to them. They don't know that he speaks their language. In verses 14 through 17, he tests them. Joseph wants to test him, and that's the theme we often see in Scripture, the testing of God's people in Jeremiah 6, 27, and Psalm 66, 10. Those are just two examples, but there are many examples. This test will show Joseph a few things. Let me read here from verse 14 to 17. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. But this you shall be tested by the life of Pharaoh. You shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. 
Send one of you and let, and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put, the, and he put them all together in custody for three days. This will show him three things. One, if his father's still alive. Are they just saying things or is he truly still alive? Two, is Benjamin, I have in my notes here, Benny, because I like that name for him. Benny, is Benny still alive? Three, if his brothers have changed at all, will, will the one sacrifice his time of safety to rescue the other nine? Or will he be just like they used to be seeing Joseph carted away to imprisonment, to slavery? Have they changed at all? God uses the sins of others to discipline us, to disciple us, to make us in the image of his son. He also uses our own sins. Let's go back to godly sorrow. Talked about godly sorrow here as I was starting this in verses 18 through 28. We do see sorrow, whether that's worldly sorrow or godly sorrow, time will tell. In 2 Corinthians, it talks about how there are different kinds of sorrow when it comes to sin. Worldly sorrow. Their uncle Esau, he had worldly sorrow. In fact, he sought repentance even with tears, but he got no repentance. Godly sorrow sorrow brings conviction and it leaves hope. God uses our sins, our sins, even the sins of believers, to remind us of the all-surpassing power that is not from us, but from him. He uses our sins to draw him to ourself. The prime sin of our, the prime sin of our time that is not even truly a sin is that of shame. We, people, they don't, not many things are considered sin anymore, but to feel shame, to make somebody feel shame, that, is, that seems to be the prime sin of our time, which is a shame since that is what God uses to bring the prodigal back. The prodigal doesn't come back until he realizes that he doesn't need to be eating the, the pods that pigs are eating. In his father's house, even slaves eat better than him. Verses 18 through 20, he's left them in prison for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, well, um, where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your household. And bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Verse 21. And they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. Is this, is this, is that why we saw the distress of his, of his soul when he begged us and we would not listen? This is why this distress has come upon us. Worldly sorrow. They start talking to each other. But before that, they have three days in prison. And on the third day, they're let out, just like the butler and the, butler and the baker. He gives them three days in a pit. This is why I wonder if he's maybe acting somewhat emotionally, because he gives them a taste of what they gave him. He accuses them of being spies, right? You know what they accused him of being? A spy of their father. He throws them in a pit. They threw him in a pit. He threatens them with death. Remember, plan A was to kill him. And then he threatens them with enslavement. So he gives them a taste of what he got. He tells them in a very stern way, and he actually 
After three days, he changes his mind. I think he comes to his senses here that if they're going to bring enough food back for the rest of the, rest of the tribe, it's going to take more than one. It's going to take nine. It's actually a better test too because will the nine leave the one to wallow or will the nine come back for the one? We think of the words of Jesus Christ where you leave the 99 and go for the one. Will they do the same? Have they really changed? He reverses the test. Now the nine will be going and the one will be staying. In verses 21 through 23, they start talking to each other. So I ended that reading right here. They said to one another in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy, but you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. For 20 years, this has been settling in them. 20 years before this, their brother pleaded with them. They, he begged them not to do this thing, and they did it anyway. And for 20 years, they've been carrying this guilt. We see one of them is actually mentioned in what he said. So in general, we have, we have the 10 talking, that this has come upon us because of what we did to our brother. But one specifically, Reuben. Reuben's the oldest of the brothers. Reuben remembered he wasn't down with killing them, and he wasn't down with sending him into slavery. He wanted to go rescue, him, rescue Joseph. So he told them, yeah, that all sounds good. And in his mind, he's like, I'm going to go save my brother. But he took too long. You see this distress in Reuben. That Reuben, you can imagine him 20 years ago knowing as he's going to go get some rope, I need to get Joseph out of that pit or else I'll never leave the pit. And for 20 years, he never left that pit. Maybe some of you today, maybe you're watching right now and you haven't left a pit for 20 years. Your guilt has burned in you. Maybe it was just a few months. Maybe it's a lot longer than that. I don't know. The Holy Spirit knows. And God wants to set you free today. He wants to set you free. He wants you to truly believe his words that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. And here's the part we never want to believe and cleanse us from unrighteousness. I talked with a friend and he had messed up in a really big way, but God had restored so much in his life. And I said, do you still feel that guilt? He's like, I do. I was like, do you ever believe the Lord when he says he cleanses you from unrighteousness? We say things like this, I know that God's forgiven me, but I can't forgive myself. And we think we sound so humble, but we are so prideful. Because when we say that, and where we hold on to unforgiveness towards others, we look at the cross and we look at Christ dying on the cross. We look at him looking towards his father and saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama shabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We look at that and we say, not good enough. Not good enough. I know you're pierced for my transgressions. I need to be pierced too. That's not good enough. We, we look up towards the father who gave the son, his only son, in whom he loved. We went over that today in Sunday school when he was being baptized. The father says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. You know, the last time that God had said that to somebody was to Abraham, to take your son, your only son, in whom you are well pleased and take him up to this mountain and sacrifice him. God the Father takes his son, his only son, in whom he was well pleased, and takes him up 
to the same hill and the, the knife doesn't stop. The nails go in. The crown of thorns come on. And you say to the Father, not good enough. And then you say to the Holy Spirit, who is knocking on your heart's door, don't come in. I'm not dressed. Don't come in. I'm not decent. And he says back to us, who told you you were naked? 20 years they've been living in this pit of guilt. And they believe every bad thing that happens to them must be because of what they have done. They believe God is punishing them, but actually this is for their good. This is for their good. Without this, they all die. This is for their good. In verse 24, Joseph understands what they are saying. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. Joseph understands them. They believe he can't understand them because he uses an interpreter, but he understands them and he weeps. This is yet another picture of Christ, Jesus Christ, our great high priest, who sympathizes with our weakness. We see this when he raises, when Jesus Christ raises his friend Lazarus from the dead. Jesus had a plan in mind. He'd wait three days, or I think it's longer, wait for him to be nice and dead, nice and stinketh, according to the King James. And he's going to raise him from the dead so people will know that the Son of Man has power over life and death. So he comes, he comes back to the same area, and he sees, his, he sees one of Lazarus' sister, Martha, who's telling him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And as pastor, I've heard this by, from so many people. If God had been here, this wouldn't have happened. And Jesus reasons with her because Martha is more of an analytical person. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me will live even though they die. And she's like, yeah, I know at the resurrection. Then he goes a little bit further and he sees Mary, the more emotional of the sisters, and he sees the mourners. He's about to raise the man from dead. This is going to be awesome. But he sees and he sympathizes with our weakness. And that's where we get one of the shortest verses in the Bible. Jesus wept. Sometimes we think about our troubles and we think God thinks they're so petty. No, dear one, he weeps with you. The unseen person in this story, God himself is weeping over these brothers who are living in this guilt and that is why such, great, such a great thing is being happened here is because he wants to see them restored with a cleansed conscience. I don't know if Joseph's actions were just him being emotional or the Holy Spirit or both. I do know this. He's the first person in Scripture where it says that the Holy Spirit dwells in him. And I also know this. The Holy Spirit often uses us without our knowledge or knowing. Sometimes he uses you for that. Sometimes you say something to me. In fact, um, I'm trying to get better not to mention people's actual names from the le lectern, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, during COVID, COVID was kind of a rough time. We were the first church, I think, in Iowa that opened back up. At the time, I know this is hard to remember, people were saying, were saying things, you're killing the people in your congregation by doing this. And I'm like, I don't know anything about anything. I'm not a medical doctor. All I know is what I'm supposed to do when we're supposed to meet together. Three weeks was more than long enough. And I'm, I'm, in the, I'm over in Fairway, and Brent Owen sees me in there. And uh, he just tells me that he appreciates that we're, we opened back up when we did. And, and I think I've told you this before, Brent, that meant the world to me. Because I felt, I felt so incredibly alone as a pastor. 
Because I just had a meeting with about 100 other pastors, and every person's like, oh, absolutely not. That'd be so foolish to do. And I'm like, well, I am. <laughs> God often uses us, the Holy Spirit often uses us without, us without our knowledge. So I don't know what it is. I know that the Holy Spirit is working in this. In verses 26 through 28, they are sent on their way. And that is where we get the title of today's sermon, verses 26 through 28. Then they loaded their donkeys with grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey's fodder at the lodging place, he saw the money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. And, as, and at, at this, their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another saying, what is this that God has done? They take off back to their father to get Benny and to come back. And as they are traveling, they find money, the money that they were supposed to pay for their grain, back in their saddles. This frightens them because they assume they'll be accused of theft. A guilty conscience does this. It sucks all the joy out of a person's life. Here's the Lord to one of his children who has a guilty conscience he wants to set us free from it so that we might enjoy the abundant life that he has for us. It sucks all the joy out of life. Every blessing becomes a curse because the person keeps asking, I wonder when the boot's coming down. In fact, I remember talking to yet another friend. They were talking about things are going really good. It makes me really nervous. I was like, stop it. You only have to live through bad things in your life once, not a thousand times before and a thousand times after. You only have to live through them once. But that's what a guilty conscience does. They wonder, when's the, when's the, when's the shoe coming down? All the joy is sucked out of, out of their life. Every blessing becomes a curse. They ask the question, what is this God has done? I find this so interesting because there's a king much later on in the Old Testament who says, this is the one question you can't ask of God. The guy is Nebuchadnezzar, or Nebi for short. Nebuchadnezzar, he is king of the known world. In a little nation called Babylon. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. He goes out and he sees the splendor of his kingdom. He's a pagan king and he's like, look at my grandness. And God strikes him with madness and he has seven years of his own of want. Seven years where he doesn't even have the fruit of his own mind. I don't know about you, I find that to be more frightening than a lot of things. Because I remember when I had the, the TIA, the stroke, and I was disconnected. My mind was disconnected from me. And that, that was so much worse than anything I've ever experienced because I wasn't me. So for seven years, he's wandering around naked, eating grass like a cow. It's funny, in, in Babylonian, um, Babylonian records, there's a seven-year gap in his reign. Smart idea. You don't want to be talking about what your sovereigns do during that. You don't want to have any state dinners during that time. And this guy's going, Moo! and you're like, who's that? That's our king. <laughs> so let's talk about the trade deal. Um, he has his seven years of famine for himself, seven years of want. And at the end of it, in Daniel chapter 4 and verse 35, at the end of, uh, at the, end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honor him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion 
and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will, according to the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? And you can say it, but it's already been answered in so many, many ways. We know the answer because we have the book. They don't have the book. We can go to chapter 50. What you meant for evil, God meant for the good. What is being done right here is ultimately for your good, for the mending of your family. But I can answer this for every person who turns to the Lord and says, what have you done? This is what he is doing, is he's looking to restore, to forgive, and to cleanse. John is the one who actually is the one who says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All unrighteousness, not the little sins, not the socially accepted sins, not the, you know, the accountability groups and it comes your time and you make up something real quick, oh, I deal with pride or something like that. No, the sins that you don't want anybody to know about, he cleanses from all unrighteousness. What if you sold your brother into slavery? He cleanses from all unrighteousness. Forgive, reconcile, a clean conscience. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22, and worship team, you can come up at this time. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Are you having a hard time worshiping, dear ones? Are you having a hard time Maybe not here because you can go through the motions. Nobody knows. But at home, like the only time you think about the Lord is when you come here. Maybe it's because you don't have this clear conscience. But let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. I write down my, con- my, my conclusion, the challenge and everything. The three ways that God disciples us. He uses the sinful world. He uses the sins of others and he uses our sin. Like a master sculptor using sandpaper that is rough to make us smooth. So challenge today I have on here. Are you being discipled by the Lord? I don't need to ask you that because the answer is yes. I don't care where you're at. I don't care how good life is right now. You are being discipled by the Lord. Some discipleship, some discipline is very light. Some is very hard. You are being discipled by the Lord. I want to challenge you with this. Do not lose heart because that's what Hebrews tells us. Do not lose heart. Believe that what is being done in you will produce a crown of righteousness which far as outweighs it all. Rejoice that you are a legitimate son or daughter of the living God. A pastor I knew that I respected greatly fell in ministry because of a moral failure. And he was giving his announcement. It broke my heart, but I thought it was, I don't know how to put this. His ministry is not as important as his soul. So I was glad his ministry is ending for the sake of his soul. And I blessed and I love God for that because my ministry is not as important as my soul. And that what he said is that I know that I am a true son because God is disciplining me through this. And he never, he never went back to ministry and he shouldn't have either. But I, I rejoice because God was showing that he was a legitimate son.
Finally, hope. Hope. God will work this together for your good. It may, not be, it may not be pleasant to go through, but it will be worked together for your good. After all, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your own blood. Worship team, would you lead us in our final song? I've had to dwell on this for weeks now. And as I dwell on it, there's something new. The Holy Spirit pops up into my heart. So there may be many things that God is working with you in this last song is your time to respond to him. Maybe you have that guilty conscience. And you need to, by faith, come to the Father and say, I give this up because you bled and died for it. The word confess that they're translating into English as confess is homologos, which means same word, to have the same word. So no excuses. I admit this is what you know of this sin, Lord. And then I believe through faith that not only have you forgiven, you've cleansed me from unrighteousness. If you're going through it right now or your time's coming up, and that's all of us, know that God will use all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. What others mean for evil, maybe you've meant for evil, God will turn to the, towards the good.